looking at the book of Zechariah. And we saw that the context was that Zechariah was speaking to people who were discouraged and distracted. He was delivering God's message to God's people. And this particular group of God's people had recently returned from exile. They had returned to find Israel overgrown and neglected. And God had given this group of people the work of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. But we learned last week that they had set that work aside. And through the prophet Zechariah, God said to these discouraged and distracted people, return to me and I will return to you. Repent, God said, and see what I will do. Well, we were told the people did repent, and God responded by giving a series of visions to Zechariah. We looked at the first of those last week. And before we continue looking at those visions this morning, it's worth stopping to ask, what's the point of communicating in visions? We know that some parts of the Bible are fairly easy to understand. The book of Acts, for example. When we read Acts, what we see is what we get. It's a pretty matter-of-fact account of historical events. There are large parts of Scripture that are like that. But when we turn to the book of Zechariah, we find something very different. We find prophetic visions filled with unusual things, sometimes even weird things, things that are not immediately easy to understand. And Zechariah isn't the only book like this. We could include Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, and parts of other books. So we need to ask, what's the point? Why did God choose to communicate parts of his word in this way? Well, we can answer that by realizing what these visions are talking about. In general, they're speaking either about future events or realities from another world. They were designed to teach either about things that hadn't yet happened or about things that are not visible to the naked eye, spiritual realities. When we understand that, it makes sense that these parts of the Bible are going to be very different from a historical record like Acts. God is teaching about things that haven't been seen before or that can't be seen. How do you do that? You have to use pictures and symbols. In order to explain things your audience doesn't know and can't see, You have to make comparisons with things they do know and can see. Now, thankfully, the pictures and symbols are usually picking up on earlier parts of Scripture that are clear. And even more helpfully, they're often taken up and explained for us by the New Testament. So, while it's true some of these visions can seem very odd at first, with a little effort, we can begin to tune in to what's going on. We can hear a message that's both clear and also relevant for us today. So let's return to Zechariah, and we're going to pick up after God has made a promise 
to return to Jerusalem with mercy. We'll pick up at chapter 1, verse 18, and I'll read through to chapter 3, verse 10. If you're using a church Bible, that's on page 950. Chapter 1, verse 18. Then I looked up, and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one could raise their head. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. While the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, Zion, escape you who live in daughter Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. After the glorious one has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. I will surely raise up my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, standing at his right side to accuse him. Then the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, 
Then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See, the stone I have set in front of Joshua, there are seven eyes on that one stone. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. This is God's word. And this passage divides into two. And the first thing God shows Zechariah is the city of God. Remember, the people Zechariah are talking to have been called to rebuild Jerusalem. And here, God shows them the Jerusalem he has in mind. He begins by showing them it's a place of security and blessing for God's people. In chapter 1, verse 18, Zechariah sees four horns. And he's told in verse 19... These are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then verse 21 explains that these horns belong to nations. Why talk about horns? Well, think of an animal with horns, maybe a bull. Some of you might have seen film of a bull fight. The bull is an incredibly strong animal. And when it swings its head or charges, all of that power is channeled through its horns. It's the horns you've got to be afraid of. And so in the ancient world, horns became a symbol for strength and power. Nations who lifted up their horns against God's people were nations who attacked God's people. So then, why four horns? Well, that's a way of saying they come from everywhere, from all directions. Today, we might say from all four points of the compass. The ancient equivalent was to talk about the four winds. And in fact, that phrase occurs later in our passage. So it's true that in the past, there were certain specific nations that had come and scattered Israel. But the text goes out of its way here not to mention specific nations. We're to think of any and every power of this world that rises up to oppose God's people. Then Zechariah says in verse 20, the Lord showed me four craftsmen. Maybe that word makes us think of someone whittling away at a stick or sitting at a potter's wheel. But the word refers to much more hefty things than that. We're to think more along the lines of a blacksmith with a heavy hammer in his hand. These craftsmen are powerful. Their muscles are rippling. And again, there are four of them. So they operate everywhere in all directions. And verse 20 says, the four craftsmen have come to terrify and throw down the four horns that oppose God's people. The craftsmen represent 
the power of God at work. So this is a picture of reassurance. Whatever the power of the enemy, whatever form that power takes, and wherever it shows itself, it will not only be opposed by God's power, it will ultimately be thrown down by God's power. This is not a war between evenly balanced forces. There can only be one outcome. What happens next is that from that big comprehensive picture, the vision zooms in quite suddenly to present-day Jerusalem, at least present-day for Zechariah. We zoom in at lightning speed from a big vision that covers the four points of the compass right down to a street in Palestine. Except, of course, it's not a street because at this point Jerusalem is in ruins. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. This man is preparing for the first step in the building process. He's going to survey the area in preparation for the construction work. But look how the angels react to this. Verse 3. While the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. One of the angels is sent running to the man with the measuring line. And the angel's message is, wait. Before you launch into that surveying and construction work, the Lord says, let me explain what kind of city I'm going to build. Let me explain the Jerusalem that I'm planning. It's not what you're thinking. It's way beyond what you have in mind. I have a much greater plan than you could imagine. The Jerusalem I have in mind, God says, won't have walls because its population and prosperity will cause it to overflow beyond all walls. Now, the main purpose of an ancient city's walls was protection. They were there to provide security from enemies. And God wants to avoid any misunderstanding. So straight after saying there will be no walls because of its prosperity, the Lord immediately adds, don't think that means the city is going to be vulnerable. Verse 5, I myself will be a wall of fire around it. In other words, the prosperity of this city will not compromise its security. God says, I will personally make sure of that. The Lord is underlining the point of the previous vision, where the four craftsmen threw down the horns that were raised against God's people. Both the wall of fire and the craftsmen are pictures of God's protection and defense of his people. Then having said that he will be a wall of fire around the city, 
The Lord goes on to say, I will be the glory within that city. If God's presence guarantees the security of this place, his presence is also the true blessing and prosperity of this place. So the glory of this city is not going to consist in vaults that are filled with gold and silver and precious stones. Its glory will be the fact that God is personally present there. At this point, we need to ask, what would all of this have meant to Zechariah's first audience? How would they have understood this? Well, we know that they have previously been commissioned by God to take up shovels and pickaxes and rebuild the physical bricks and mortar city of Jerusalem. But now God is showing these people that ultimately he is planning a Jerusalem that's not made from bricks and mortar. The Lord himself will be the walls in the center of this city. So then what does this vision have to do with their work? The vision is here to inspire them to get on with their work, to give them confidence for their work. The people in Zechariah's day are to do the work they have been given. And they're to do it with confidence that it will contribute to God's bigger, grander building plan. These people now know the city they're working on is not the ultimate Jerusalem. They may not understand how their building work is going to contribute to that ultimate Jerusalem. But they can be sure God will use their obedience to move his plans forward. And that's what we see when we get to the New Testament. By then, Jerusalem is a thriving city again. It's been rebuilt. And on the day of Pentecost, God uses earthly Jerusalem. He uses it to launch the building of his new Jerusalem, his eternal city that finds its security and blessing in him. According to the New Testament, the church of Jesus Christ is the city of God. The book of Hebrews describes the church as Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. All those who belong to Jesus Christ make up the city that finds its security and glory in God himself. And today that heavenly city is still being built. It's being built as men, women, teenagers, retired people continue to come and put their trust in Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation describes the future day when this city will be completed. Revelation tells us it will fill the new heaven and earth. And we're told the city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. The book of Zechariah, then, is a book filled with hope. It calls God's people from every era to serve him with confidence. We have his promise that he is using us to build his eternal city. And from the day God announced his building plans, he began calling men and women 
to come and find their home in that city. Look at chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, Zion, escape, you who live in daughter Babylon. The exile, when it came, had come from God as punishment for Israel's sin. So God is correct when he says, I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven. And at this point, many of those exiles and their families have not yet returned to Israel. Many of them would have been well settled in their life in exile. They may well have come to think of Babylon and the other cities of exile as their home. But here God calls them to come home. And of course, on one level, this is a call to return to the land of Israel. But ultimately, this is a call to come to the new Jerusalem God is going to build. After all, that's the city God has been talking about. That's where the real focus is here. And we can see it in the way God refers to these scattered people. Look closely at verse 7. God says, Come, Zion, escape, you who live in daughter Babylon. Zion is another way of referring to Jerusalem. But here, God is referring to his scattered people as Zion. Some translations miss that, or they think they need to correct it. But the NIV has got it right. Already, God is talking the way he talks in the New Testament. Already, God is making clear that the real Jerusalem is made up of people. He does not say, come you people to Jerusalem. He says, come you people who are Jerusalem. Come and find your home in me. Then God adds something very significant. First in verse 8, he mentions the nations that have plundered you. God expresses his anger at those nations. Through the angel, we're told that God's attitude is, whoever touches you, that's God's people, touches the apple of God's eye. The apple of your eye is your eyeball. God is saying, those who touch my people may as well poke me in the eye. I am going to react. Verse 9, I will surely raise my hand against them. There will be judgment on those nations. But that is only half the picture of God's dealings with those nations. Look also at verse 10. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. Yes, there will be a day when God brings his hand of judgment against the nations. That's clear from verses 8 and 9. But at the same time, God also holds out the offer of grace and mercy to those very same nations. They too can come and find their home in him. So the city of God is a place where all kinds of people become God's people. 
Earlier, God said the city he's building is a city without walls. It's a secure city, but it's a city that's open to all who will come and join with the Lord. It's not a place only for certain kinds of people. It's for all kinds of people. This is how those kinds of people are described in the New Testament. According to the New Testament, this city God is building is a place where wrongdoers can find a home. And the sexually immoral and idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, and swindlers. That list is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the Bible condemns every item on that list as a sin. And it also says those kinds of people can find a home in this city God is building if they will turn from their sin and join with the Lord. When that happens, those kinds of people become God's people. Now this picture, as beautiful as it is, presents a very significant problem. The problem is this. If God is at the center of this city, then only pure and holy people can join him in the city. Because that's what God himself is like. Sin cannot and will not be tolerated in God's presence. At the beginning of the Bible, that was the reason the first man and woman were expelled from the Garden of Eden. God had lived in the garden with them. But once the man and woman became sinners, they had to leave. What was true of God's garden is equally true of his city. Only those who are pure and holy like God can live with God. But here is God inviting his enemies to join him in his city. That creates an issue. And there's one person who is ready to point out to God that this wonderful plan is impossible. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. This next vision centers on the priest with dirty clothes. The scene takes place in a heavenly courtroom. Now remember, this is a vision. We would be reading too much into this if we concluded that Satan has some sort of say in what goes on in heaven. But in this vision, the heavenly court is in session. And Satan, which means the accuser or the adversary, Satan has come to accuse Joshua before God the judge. 
Now, this Joshua is a historical person. He's not the most famous Joshua in the Bible. He's not the one who has a book named after him. This Joshua was alive and serving as high priest in Jerusalem during Zechariah's ministry. And verse 3 makes it clear that Satan has a cut and dried case against Joshua. Here Joshua is in the presence of the most holy God, dressed in filthy clothes. Actually, that's putting it quite politely. The language that's used here allows us to be much more specific. Joshua's robes are covered with human excrement and with vomit. That's what the language means. So picture that for a moment. Imagine the smell of that for a moment. It's one of the most revolting pictures, actually, in all of Scripture. And it's a picture of sin. It's important to realize this is not just about Joshua's sin. Remember, Joshua is the high priest. He represents the people to God. That's his job. So the filth that's dripping from Joshua, the stench that's radiating from him, belongs also to the people he represents. In chapter 2, we heard God calling men and women from the four winds of heaven. Come, join me in my city. I will live among you. But these people God has invited are literally dripping with the filth and guilt of sin. And when you and I hear God's call, we are among those filthy ones. Now, our sin might not seem revolting to us. We may feel that our particular sins are fairly minor and respectable, at least compared to other people's sin. Maybe we see ourselves as dressed in clothes that are more faded than filthy. But we need to see ourselves as God sees us. In God's eyes, we are oozing contamination. And our sin is a stench in his nostrils. If we don't see that, we will never see the wonder of what happens next. We've been told that Satan is standing to accuse Joshua. And no doubt Satan is hardly able to contain his excitement. God's plan is going to be ruined. Satan knows very well that everything sinful and unclean must be cast out from God's presence and destroyed. Satan knows that God's city is going to be empty, except for God himself. But before Satan can deliver his accusation, the Lord silences him. In verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? God's point is very simple. Yes, Satan, I can see what this man is. I am under no illusions about his condition. His sin, and the sin of the people he represents. 
I am well aware they're unworthy in my presence. The only thing they deserve is to burn forever in the fire of my judgment. But, God says, I have chosen them. I have chosen to show grace to them. I have chosen to snatch this stick from the fire. I have chosen to take away his filth and give him cleanness. Look at verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. These verses describe the filthy one who is made clean. This is how God's grace works. It doesn't ignore sin and guilt. No, it looks sin and guilt full in the face and it says, I take your sin. And I give you cleanness. I make you holy and righteous. God says, I not only invite you to my city, I give you the right clothes for my city. I dress you for the occasion. I call the unacceptable and I make them acceptable. So this is how the sexually immoral and idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, and swindlers can find a home in the city of God. That's how people like you and me find our home there. And notice, having been made clean, Joshua is now commissioned to go and obey the one who made him clean. Verse 6, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. One of our songs says, In royal robes I don't deserve, I live to serve your majesty. That's the picture here. Joshua is not being sent to go and earn God's acceptance. He's being sent to go and serve because he has been accepted. And it's the same for us too. In Ephesians, Paul says, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. But how can God do this? How can he take our sin and exchange it for holiness? And if God takes our sin, doesn't that mean he becomes dirty? Well, the final verses of this vision point us to the answer. They point us to the clean one who became filthy. Verse 8, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch, 
See, the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. So here God explains that the transaction which we've just seen taking place, the transaction that we have seen in a vision is actually a symbol or a picture of a future transaction. God says, I'm going to bring in the future my servant, the branch. Now that may not mean anything at all to us, but the Old Testament often refers to this person, the branch. It often predicts the arrival of this person. In various places, God says this person will save God's people by suffering on their behalf. So although this mention of the branch might be out of the blue for us, it would have been well known to Zechariah's first audience. Verse 9 mentions a stone with seven eyes and an inscription on it. And I take that to be a reference to one of the precious gemstones that was on the high priest's uniform. If that's correct, then the eyes on the stone are the facets of the stone. And the inscription on the stone is holy to the Lord. We find those details of the priest's uniform in the book of Exodus. And the point here is this. This individual called the branch will function as a priest for God's people. But he will not be like any other priest. Because he will accomplish all of his work in one day. Every other priest offered regular, regular, endlessly repeated sacrifices. But through the sacrifice of this priest, God says at the end of verse 9, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. The New Testament tells us the man foretold in this vision is Jesus Christ. It tells us he took our filthy clothes and gave us his clean clothes. It tells us he wore our sin and guilt on the cross. And there he was punished for our sin and guilt. He took the fire of God's wrath so we could be snatched from that fire. He died cast out of God's presence so we could be welcomed into God's presence. The New Testament puts it like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And because of that great exchange that takes place, all who come to Jesus find a welcome in God's city. That's what's being pictured in verse 10. It's a picture of the security and blessing and community of the new Jerusalem. Satan loves to accuse He would love you and I to be condemned to hell with him. 
But when he steps forward with his accusations, our Father in heaven says, there is no condemnation for this one. I have snatched this one from the fire. And my son has paid for this one's sin. This one has been washed and clothed in the pure, holy robes that belong to my son. This one is mine. This one belongs in my city. And when we understand this, it will be our greatest joy to serve this God who has snatched us from the fire. In a few moments, we're going to sing a song called Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean. And we're going to include this third verse, which I think sums up our passage. After having spoken about Christ's death, it says, Millions since in earth and heaven, drawing near the eternal throne, called from every tribe and nation, one exalted Savior own. In that crowded congregation, I, astonished, find my place, cleansed and clothed and by adoption, made a child of God by grace. If you've never come and received the cleansing and acceptance this song is talking about, you can come to Jesus this morning. And you can hear him say, See, I have taken away your sin, and I give you my purity and my holiness. Let's stand together and sing, Here is love, vast as the ocean, and then King of Kings, Majesty.